Hey, hey, and welcome to episode four of How to Get Insulin in Jail. My name's Aaron Feely, and this episode is going to be a little different than the first three, which, if you missed the first three episodes, we explored cases where insulin-dependent people were locked up and at the mercy of jail personnel who were either ignorant to the fact that depriving someone of insulin means condemning them to an excruciating, inevitable death within days, or, if they were not ignorant to that fact, then they were simply too depraved to care. This episode is going to dive into another factor, though. What happens when the person simply can't afford the insulin? This happened to Clifford Farrar in 2021. He was serving a year in prison in Washington State when he died. His family said he had been begging the jail for his life-saving insulin and supplies, but the facility holding him simply didn't want to pay for it. So indeed, while I have you here, I would be remiss to not point out that this unaffordable insulin crisis is not unique to American jails, but it is unique to America. Now, the root of this problem goes much deeper than just insulin. But the insulin crisis gives us a very unique insight into the bigger picture here because, you know, without insulin, there's not a lot of time. You know, there's no time for semantics, no time to wait around and see a judge after the weekend, no time for prior authorization. So when we examine all this through this very niche and specific lens and ask, like, okay, how do we solve this particular problem, it gives us insight into where some of the cracks are in the system at large, in both the criminal justice and the healthcare landscapes. Case in point, look at what happened to Alec Rayshawn Smith. Alec Rayshawn Smith was a restaurant manager and type 1 diabetic living in Minnesota. He turned 26 in 2017, and, you know, under the Affordable Care Act, you lose any insurance coverage you might have had under your parents once you turn 26. So in May of 2017, Alec turns 26, and starting that June, he's booted off his mom's insurance plan. So without insurance, at list price, a month's worth of his insulin costs $1,300. $1,300 per month to just stay alive, right? This isn't counting rent, gas, groceries, utilities, and, you know, Everything else that still needs to be paid for. So Alec made $35,000 a year at his restaurant job, which averages out to $2,100 a month or $525 a week. So again, out of the $2,100 he makes each month, right off the bat, he's $1,300 in the hole just to not die. So obviously he's going to need health insurance, right? So in 2017... The annual income cutoff for Medicaid in Minnesota for a single working person was $23,760, which comes out to $1,980 a month or $495 a week. So in Minnesota in 2017, if you as a working single person earned more than $495 a week, you did not qualify for state Medicaid insurance. Alec was making $525 a week, so Alec was making $30 a week, too much, to qualify for government assistance on his $1,300 a month life support bill. So, okay, government insurance is out, which leaves him now with commercial insurance. The plan he did qualify for had a monthly premium of $450. In other words, Alec has to pay $450 a month for health insurance, which is still a lot for someone who barely makes $2,000 a month, but, you know, that's still way better than the $1,300 list price for insulin. Or at least, so he thought. Turns out this plan also included a $7,600 deductible. So your deductible is the amount you have to pay out of pocket per year toward your own health care before your insurance is even going to kick in. Whether it's toward doctor's appointments or prescriptions or hospital stays or whatever you end up needing toward healthcare, you have to cover your own deductible before your insurance will even become useful. You know, the same insurance that you're already paying this monthly premium to every month. So the argument for deductibles, as I understand it, is that they're a trade-off for lower monthly premiums. 
So if you're in good health and you, you know, don't have a lot of regular medical expenses, theoretically, that would be favorable to having to pay a higher monthly fee for insurance you might not end up using. But it's still a gamble because, like, what if you get into a car accident? Or what if you get COVID and for some reason you're one of the unlucky ones who ends up on a ventilator? So the deductible theoretically will save you because you'll only have to pay, say, $7,600 of your unexpected $500,000 whatever it is hospital stay. But $7,600 is still a lot to all of a sudden have to come up with, especially unexpectedly. On the flip side, if nothing of that sort happens and your yearly physical at your PCP is your only medical bill that year, you're still paying that medical bill out of pocket on top of paying a premium to the insurance company every month along the way. But anyway, back to Alec. So, Alec would now be paying $450 per month just to have the health insurance, but he's also required to still pay the $1,300 list price for his insulin for however many months until his deductible is met. Let's see. 7,600 divided by 13 is 5.8. Okay, so for about six months, Alec is responsible for footing his own insulin bill on top of paying the monthly premium for health insurance. So now, this 26-year-old kid who makes $525 a week is now set up to actually pay $1,750 a month out of his $2,100 a month income to get his insulin, at least for the first six months. But then, deductibles reset every new year. Now, Alec's birthday was May 20th, and he was officially booted off his mom's insurance starting that June. So if you figure, six months of list price insulin means, starting in June, he wouldn't make his deductible until December, and then it just resets again in January. So health insurance is actually setting Alec up to pay $1,750 a month for his life support insulin for a year before he'd start seeing any benefit of even having health insurance at all. So he opted to go without insurance and just eat the $1,300 list price outright at the pharmacy. He was found dead on the floor next to his bed less than a month later. And on his nightstand was an empty insulin pen. He died three days before payday. Alec's mom, Nicole Smith-Holt, later testified to, to the Senate during a hearing on prescription drug costs. Here she is. I received a call that no parent ever wants to receive or expects to receive. I was told that my son was found dead in his apartment, on his bedroom floor, was found all alone. My story is not so different from what I hear from other families. Far too many times I've heard of people resorting to buying insulin from the black market, swapping supplies from Facebook support groups, using expired insulin in test strips, trading sex for insulin, using pet insulin, starving themselves to reduce the number of units that they need, not paying their rent, rationing or skipping dosages, disallowing themselves only enough insulin to not die. Basically, millions of people with diabetes are playing Russian roulette with their lives. Parents are selling their homes, cashing in on their retirement and college funds, working two and three jobs, and selling their plasma. Young adults are dropping out of college. They're getting married just to have insurance or not getting married to the love of their lives because they'll lose their state-funded insurance. I've heard of people with diabetes traveling to other countries to get their insulin. Some have even relocated to these countries. Many report stockpiling supplies and insulin, even expired insulin, just in case, because no one knows what the price of insulin is going to be next month. Some are even basically planning their own funerals because they cannot continue to pay the price of insulin. Also in 2017, Shane Patrick Boyle was leading a productive and meaningful life down in Texas. He was the founder of a comics and arts festival now known as Zinefest Houston. Shane had to move, though, to neighboring Arkansas because his mom was dying and she needed his help. Well, as soon as he crossed state lines, his health insurance plan was null and void. So Shane applied for government insurance in Arkansas while taking on his mother's hospice care and making her funeral arrangements. He quickly realized, though, that he was going to run out of insulin before his insurance application was approved. So he did what we do in modern times. He started a GoFundMe 
to try and raise enough money for that one interim month's worth of insulin while he waited for his insurance application to be accepted. And in the meantime, he rationed the insulin he did have left. Well, a week after his mom died, Shane died too. At the time of his excruciating, untimely, and preventable death by diabetic ketoacidosis, aka lack of insulin, his Arkansas insurance application was still pending, and his GoFundMe campaign for insulin was $50 short. He's far from alone, too. If you need additional case studies, just go on GoFundMe and type insulin in the search bar. So why is insulin costing this much in the United States? Which, for the record, a vial of insulin costs manufacturers about $5 to make. In 2019, the average cost for one vial of Humalog insulin was about $32 in Canada, $16 in Mexico, $8 in the UK, and $320 in the United States. And that's just one vial. I mean, I know I personally go through three to four vials a month. So what the hell is going on around here, right? That is the billion-dollar question, my friends. Again, let's take this insulin crisis and use it to kind of examine where uh, the cracks are in the system at large. Because, I mean, whether it's behind bars or at the pharmacy counter, the outcome is still the same. So the first factor that put us on the trajectory that led us here is that prescription drug prices are not regulated in the United States. This is on purpose. It's supposed to foster a free market and healthy competition and you know, uh, encourage capital funding. Now, it is true that the United States is the worldwide leader in medical innovation and that we probably would not have advanced medicine in all the ways we have without the funding that these pharmaceutical companies could only secure in a free market like ours. Because, hey, research and development is risky business. Investors know this. They know a project could fail or that nothing could come of it and that they could be out big money. So the prospect of the government uh, capping and controlling their potential return on investment only makes it that much riskier. Whereas if you strike gold with your invention or innovation or your new medicine or whatever it is, you know, and you can charge top dollar for it here, that's a, it's a little bit more of an incentive to back these uh, pharmaceutical research companies. So, okay, factor one to how we got here. Drug prices not regulated in the United States. Now, the irony, as far as insulin goes, is that the two scientists that discovered insulin in 1921, Frederick Banting and Charles Best, sold their patent to the University of Toronto for $1. A mere single dollar. They sold this life-changing discovery that they won a Nobel Peace Prize for because they specifically did not want this life-saving medicine to be a profit driver. They simply wanted everyone who needs insulin to be able to have access to it. Fast forward 100 years, and now three companies in the world own the patent on insulin. Eli Lilly in the United States, Sanofi in France, and Nova Nordisk in Denmark. So these three companies have the exclusive rights to manufacture insulin worldwide. Like, these three companies own insulin, and they have consistently raised and maintained their prices in lockstep with each other, essentially fixing the price. Hey Siri, what is a cartel? Definition of cartel. A cartel is an association of similar companies or businesses that have grouped together in order to prevent competition and to control prices. Banting and Best would be rolling in their graves right now. But before we go dunking on the manufacturers entirely, keep in mind that two out of these three companies are not American. Only one is in the United States, one is in France, and the other is in Denmark. And while their prices are pretty uniform relative to each other's uh, worldwide, these prices are only uniformly unaffordable in the United States. Like the only places in the world basically that can't afford insulin are like Ethiopia and the United States. In 2022, the House of Representatives passed Bill 6833, which proposed capping insulin costs at $35 for people with Medicare and people with commercial insurance. Much of the government was against it, notably Florida Congressman Matt Gates. He made some uh, questionable comments about it, which Anna Kasparian covered on her hit online news show, The Young Turks. Gates told his constituents that he opposed the bill because fat people, not big pharma, are responsible for driving up the cost of insulin. 
He suggested that type 2 diabetes, which is often linked to obesity, could be cured if only people would work out more and lose weight, at which point they wouldn't need insulin anymore and the drug costs would fall without government intervention. I just want to be clear, there are many people who have diabetes who did not make lifestyle decisions to have it. Meaning it's not related to obesity, it's not related to their inactivity or lack of exercise. But he also says in his newsletter, arbitrary price controls are no substitute for individual weight control. Since 2000, the number of diabetes cases in the United States has nearly doubled. The demand for insulin has increased and the requisite price increases has followed suit. In other words, the price of insulin increases as waistlines increase. So let's say we play devil's advocate, right? And and we just go along with what Matt Gates is arguing here. That the majority of people who have diabetes have it because they can't control their eating, they're not getting enough exercise. Okay, so what Matt Gates is advocating for, along with the majority of his Republican colleagues in the House, is for people who can't afford this medication, people who can't afford insulin to just die. That is what they are effectively advocating for. Even if 100% of Americans with diabetes were suffering from it as a result of obesity, who the hell is Matt Gates to tell them, no, pharmaceutical companies get to price gouge you as much as they want. And as we know, this is really just price gouging. There was a giant story about Senator Joe Manchin's daughter when she was the CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals. She struck a deal with Pfizer to prevent them from putting out a generic version of the EpiPen. And the reason why she did that was to ensure that the EpiPen would be monopolized and she could charge whatever she wanted for it. And then she agreed to share some of those profits with Pfizer, essentially breaking all sorts of antitrust laws, which she was never held accountable for. Because that's how this works, guys. If you can't afford the medication and you have diabetes, what happens to you? You die, you don't take the medication, you don't get the insulin you need. And then these clowns wanna turn around and claim that they're pro-life. I wish the media actually cared about this story and covered it more. Me too, Anna. Me too. Nothing like getting gaslit by Congress. So an edited version of this bill did end up getting signed into law. They approved capping costs for people on Medicare Part D plans, but they took out the whole commercially insured patients part, which, you know, doesn't really do much for the millions of insulin-dependent Americans under the age of 65. So it's obvious that the American healthcare system is extremely broken, but the billion-dollar question is, why? So we mentioned unregulated drug prices, but that's just the factor that got us started on this dystopian trajectory. There's another catalyst at play here as well, one that is mostly contributing to, if not entirely creating, the problem. So in the United States, we have this thing called Pharmacy Benefit Managers, or PBMs. PBMs are like these mythological unicorns in the middle of the American healthcare system where no one seems to know what they do or why we need them. We do know that they are rich as fuck. So Google says that PBMs are third-party companies that function as intermediaries between insurance providers and pharmaceutical manufacturers. PBMs create formularies, negotiate rebates with manufacturers, process claims, create pharmacy networks, review drug utilization, and occasionally manage mail-order specialty pharmacies. So these PBMs are literally middlemen, like they're actually called the middlemen, because they're in the middle of the manufacturers and the pharmacies, and they're also in the middle of you, the patient, and the prescriptions that you need. And by sheer coincidence, much like the uh, the insulin manufacturers, there are three PBM companies that control more than 80% of the American healthcare sector. These three PBM companies are Express Scripts, OptumRx, and CVS Caremark. So these are the people that control which drug brand your insurance will cover, or if you really need to go see that specialist, and whether or not eyes and teeth count as medical care under your health plan. Furthermore, as if that all isn't infuriating enough, 
These PBMs also own pharmacies and mail-in companies, so naturally they're going to prefer their own business to competitors where applicable. Like CVS Health, for example, obviously if they're paying out a cut to the pharmacy dispensing the prescriptions, they're going to want to pay it back into their own pharmacy. So why do we have these mofos, right? Well, much like daylight savings time, they served a purpose at one point, but now they're kind of just like fucking up people's day. Well, it circles back around to the fact that drug prices are not regulated in the United States. So since these drug manufacturers can charge whatever they want here in this free marketplace, there was a fear that prescription prices could spiral out of control and that the insurance companies, unions, employers, government, and the public at large could be taken advantage of. So they figured, well, while the drug prices can't be controlled, they can be negotiated. So the first PBM company was established in the 70s to basically process insurance claims and find the lowest cost options for their clients, the insurance providers, employers, unions, and the government. So their services were supposed to foster competition and keep costs down. So if medicine A costs $80, and then a new biosimilar medicine B comes out that only costs $60, PBM was supposed to facilitate their clients' access to that less expensive option, or negotiate with medicine A's company that they would approve medicine A on their insurance formulary instead of the cheaper medicine B if medicine A would agree to sell it at a discount. And, they, and these PBMs were paid a flat rate, or I, I guess like a salary, uh, for doing so. So where it seems to uh, all have gone horribly wrong, though, is somewhere along the way, their business model changed from being paid a flat rate to getting paid commission. I was reading a, a letter that I got from a constituent. It was a father, two sons, both with juvenile diabetes. And he was talking about just how much the family had to spend each month to keep his sons healthy. And at the end of sharing that letter, I said to Secretary Azar or asked, what should I tell my constituent about why these costs are so high? And he said, it's complicated. That's what he said, it's complicated. It's really not that complicated at all, actually, when you simply call it what it is. These people are making commission. So when you hear them talk about all these manufacturer rebates that they negotiate and fees and discounts that they handle, at the end of the day, no, these people are making commission. So this essentially flipped their incentive 180, right? Because before, while they were being paid a flat rate, it wouldn't affect them either way what the prescription cost was. So why wouldn't they want to do their job and you know find the cheapest one for their client? But now that these middlemen make commission on the list price of every prescription that flows through the distribution system that they establish, you know, obviously they're looking at where the money is. So this switch in their business model pretty much immediately changed them from cost savers to cost multipliers. Because think about it. Now, if your doctor prescribes you a medication, let's say, I don't know, say it's like a, a seizure med, say the brand name of it costs $80 but there's a generic version of it that retails for 45. Well, the insurance is going to approve the brand that's in their formulary, which is the catalog of products that they're allowed to offer. And behind this formulary is the PBM, who is making a percentage of every prescription sale. So if they're making 80% commission on this sale, they're obviously gonna choose the $80 med over the $45 med, because obviously they'd rather make $64 than 36. I mean, that's just sales 101. So even if there's a cheaper option or maybe even one that's a better fit for that patient's needs, the insurance, or rather PBM controlling the insurance, is going to deny that one in favor of the one that makes them the most money. So when your doctor prescribes you a medication and your insurance denies it, it's actually the PBM, this third-party contractor who is essentially practicing medicine without a license, uh, who is denying it. And when your insurance requires a prior authorization for a prescription, that's the PBM basically saying, give us one good reason why we should approve you for this medicine that you need when there's a more expensive and or less effective one that will make us more money. This is how insurance providers determine their formularies, by the way. Check out this little fun fact from David Balto 
a former member of the Federal Trade Commission and the founder of PBMWatch.com. For decades, PBMs prevented pharmacists from telling consumers that there is a lower cost way of getting their drug. Oftentimes drugs are cheaper when you don't use your PBM card, you don't go through the PBM, but you just buy it with cash. But if a pharmacist told you that, the pharmacist would be terminated from the network and lose all their customers. So fundamentally, pharmacists were gagged from telling consumers what choices they had. Now the Trump administration actually uh, did away with said gag order. So we're starting to make some progress, but we've still got a long way to go. So if you're confused, stay with me. Uh, in order to demystify how this all plays out and how it affects us, the people of America, the people who are faced with these astronomical price tags at the pharmacy counters, let's take this same PBM concept and apply it to, I don't know, chocolate. Yeah, let's say chocolate. So instead of the insulin maker or whatever drug manufacturer, say we've got the CEO of Dove Chocolate, right? And instead of the health insurance company, say we've got Walmart. So let's say Walmart gets Dove Chocolate wholesale at $5 a bag. So in the pharmaceutical distribution chain, that $5 wholesale price would be the net price. So Walmart is paying a net price of $5 per bag for Dove Chocolate. And then say Walmart sells it on their shelves for $7 a bag, giving them a $2 profit margin. So that $7 price tag on the shelves of Walmart is the list price, or the price that the customers pay in the end, or patients. So Walmart buy, buys Dove for the $5 net price and then sells it for the $7 list price. So the PBM, the middleman's job, is to go to the CEO of Dove Chocolate and say, hey, I'm going to write up a contract with Walmart so that they only sell Dove chocolate from now on. Okay, so think of the products on the shelves as Walmart's formulary. So no more Nestle, no more Lent, no Hershey's, no, no nothing. No other chocolate except Dove on Walmart shelves. And in exchange for giving you this monopoly on Walmart's vast customer base, I'm going to take a 15% cut of every bag of Dove chocolate sold there. So that 15% cut is the rebate that these PBMs are negotiating. And then say, I'll pay 5% of this rebate back to Walmart as an incentive to get them to agree to this. So now Walmart is also making a commission for exclusively selling Dove chocolate on top of their profit margin on the sale itself. So here's where it starts to get messy. PBMs calculate their commission by the product's list price. So Dove Chocolate is making a $5 net price per bag that they sell to Walmart, but Walmart sells them for a list price of $7. So the PBM is calculating this 15% commission, I mean, sorry, rebate by that $7 list price and then taking it away from the $5 net price that the manufacturer is getting for it. So instead of the $5 net price that Dove was making, they're now down to making $3.95 per bag. But in theory, Dove should make that back and then some by selling way more bags at Walmart because this PBM has contractually obligated Walmart to eradicate all Dove's competition from their market. And on Walmart's end, they're now making an extra, whatever, like 40 cents per bag on top of their $2 profit margin. But here's where it gets messier. The commission that these PBMs take is not regulated or even disclosed. So over the years, these PBMs are going back to these drug manufacturers or going back to the Dove Chocolate CEO and saying, okay, well, Nestle is offering us a 20% rebate to take your spot on Walmart shelves. So if you want to keep this customer base, we're going to charge you a 25% cut moving forward. So now all of a sudden, Dove is down to making three twenty-five a bag. And as this keeps happening, you know, Let's say a few years into this contract, the PBM is now charging 80 cents on the dollar for their services, quote unquote services. An 80% rebate means that Dove is now making negative 60 cents per bag that they sell to Walmart, which obviously makes no sense, but they can't back out because if they do, then their product will get pulled from Walmart shelves or from the formulary. 
while Nestle or whichever competitor swoops in and basically monopolizes their monopoly. So obviously, if Dove Chocolate wants to stay in business here, they're going to raise their prices. So you can see where we start to lose control of this situation. But on top of that, these PBMs are also not disclosing what percentage of their cut they're paying back to Walmart. So while the PBMs are charging Dove 80 cents on the dollar now to keep the monopoly on Walmart, there's no one checking to see if Walmart is making more than that initial 40 cents extra per bag that they originally agreed to. No one knows if the cutback to Walmart or the pharmacies and the insurance is fair. This is called spread pricing and it's considered a trade secret. Even the states most of the time don't even know how much money they're losing to the PBM spread. So this is kind of where we lose the money trail in the pharmaceutical distribution chain. It's like that algebra equation, y equals mx plus b, solve for x, except we also don't have the y, the m, or the b, so no one knows who is getting what. I imagine this is why these PBMs are so opaque about their business deals. Because as soon as we start to unpack all this, it kinda seems like their entire business model violates the same antitrust laws that these same PBMs were established to protect. And they're just taking this Casey Anthony style, just convoluting it and pointing fingers and circling it back around, sending people on wild goose chases and muddling it up so much that at the end of the day, everyone's too confused to convict them. But anyway, back to the chocolate. So let's say... Dove starts charging Walmart $13 per bag wholesale, so a $13 net price, to offset this 80% PBM fee, or rebate. So Walmart is now eating that price increase, and obviously Walmart wants to stay in business too, so what does Walmart do? Raises their prices. So if Walmart wants to keep that initial $2 profit margin per bag, that means they now have to charge a $15 list price. And that's good news for the PBMs since their commission is based on that list price. So the higher the product price on the shelves at Walmart, the bigger the cut they get to take home now. Meanwhile, who is now paying that $15 list price? That's right, Walmart's customers, the patients, the public at large. And not only are we now paying $15 for a bag of chocolates, but now there's also no cheaper option like Nestle or Lindt. No cheaper chocolate anywhere in the Walmart formulary because their PBM has eradicated all of Dove's competition in that market. And this is exactly how people like 26-year-old Alex Smith, who barely makes $2,000 a month, ends up facing a $1,300 bill at the pharmacy counter. Except... You know, this isn't Dove chocolate. This is a non-negotiable, life-sustaining medication. So this has all literally become a your money or your life situation. Somehow, all of it is perfectly legal. And so Big Pharma gets bigger and bigger and lives happily ever after, feeding on the carcasses of all the victims in its wake. Not really. Not really kidding. In April 2023... Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders called a hearing between the three insulin manufacturers and the three major PBMs. And he called them all together and he was basically like, what the absolute fuck is wrong with all of you? Explain how, in the richest country in the world, people are dying three days before payday, $50 short, trying to pay $1,300 for a $5 drug, while billions of dollars go unaccounted for, and somehow none of this is anyone's fault. A couple of years ago, I took a trip from Detroit, Michigan to Windsor, Ontario with a busload of people. You know why I went? I went with those people in order to purchase insulin in Canada, which they were able to do for one-tenth of the price that they were paying in the United States of America. One-tenth of the price for the exact same product that I'll never forget as long as I live. The tears coming out of a mother's eyes because she could suddenly afford insulin. Let us not forget that a vial of insulin costs less than $10 to manufacture, as I understand it. Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's less than 10 bucks. Meanwhile, Eli Lilly increased the price of Humalog 34 times since 1996 from $21 
to $275. The same exact product, no changes at all. Why did they do it? Because they could, because nobody here has stopped them. They could charge any price they want and they did it. But it's not just Eli Lilly. Novo Nordisk increased the price of Novolog 28 times from, from uh, $40 in 20, uh, 2001 to $289. And Sanofi, a company that increased the price of Lantos 28 times from $35 in 2001 to $292. In every instance, it's the exact same product that rose, cost rose astronomically. And let's be clear, this is a problem that is unique to the United States. Meanwhile, as insulin manufacturers continue to increase prices, PBMs sign secret deals to increase their profits by putting insulin products on their formularies, not with the lowest list price, but the ones that gave PBMs the most generous rebates. Last year, the three major PBMs in America made over $27 billion in profits. In other words, people in this country get sick, they can't afford the medicine, and yet the drug companies and the PBMs make huge profits. 1.3 million Americans in the richest country on earth cannot afford insulin. Too many Americans who died. Alex Smith was 24 years old and he dreamed of opening a sports bar. He is dead because he could not afford insulin. And Tavia Lee Warsham was 22 years old and worked two jobs to support herself. She is dead because she couldn't afford insulin. Alan Rivas was 20 years old and had already lost his home because of insulin cost. This young man is also dead. And these are just a few. Do we not have any consciences, any moral values? So as you listen to the responses, just keep in mind, when you hear rebates and fees, that refers to the PBM's unspecified commission. And also remember, on the PBM side, their customers and their clients that they serve are not the patients. They're not the consumers. The people who are actually facing these astronomical list prices at the pharmacy counters are not their customers at all. So here are the three insulin maker CEOs. We've got David Ricks of the American company Eli Lilly, the list prices for insulin over time gets a lot of attention, but what we take home after rebates and discounts was about the same as when we launched in 1996, accounting for inflation. We've led the way on affordability against the headwinds of a healthcare system that unfortunately can incentivize others to prefer higher list price medicines. Higher list prices allow for higher fees and rebates, which can increase patients' out-of-pocket costs while benefiting employers, insurance companies, and people who don't use medicines. Last year, about 80% of our list prices went to pay ever-increasing fees and rebates to companies who don't invent, didn't develop, nor manufacture the medicine. And then Paul Hudson of the French company Sanofi. For all the focus on the price of insulin, the list price is not the amount the system pays. In 2022, 84% of our gross insulin sales were returned to the system as rebates and fees, 84 cents on the dollar. In fact, since 2012, the average price of Lantus for commercial insurance and Medicare Part D plans has dropped by over 50%. Yet out-of-pocket costs for people in these plans has increased by 45%. Today, the average amount the system pays for Lantus is lower than it was when it launched in 2001. Simply stated, while competition is working to drive down insulin prices for the system, those savings aren't reaching many patients. Why aren't patients benefiting from the lower prices at the pharmacy counter? Well, today there are just three players in the system that cover 80% of American lives. These consolidated entities encompass pharmacy benefit management, health insurance, specialty pharmacies, and group purchasing organizations. This vertical integration gives these corporations near total control over the products uh, the patients can access and the price they have to pay. And each of these integrated entities benefits from the selection of high-priced products on formaries because the rebates and fees they receive are calculated as a percentage of the list price. And lastly, we've got Lars Freurgaard Jorgensen of the Danish company Nova Nordisk. He attended remotely, so his audio is a little wonky. No one who needs insulin 
should have to ration or go without it because they cannot afford it. That should never be the case. Promote has worked hard to fill the gaps of the US healthcare system, but we know the problem remains. That's why we are all here today. Patients too often find themselves trapped by healthcare system with a misaligned economic set of incentives. It's a system where more and more dollars flow to insurers, the newly created subsidiaries, so-called group purchasing organizations, and the PBMs, but not to patients. We now pay on average 75 cents of every dollar of medicine we sell. And this money goes back to the middlemen. Okay, so all three of them agree that yes, their prices are exorbitant in the United States because they have to pay the United States exorbitant fees to do business here. They're essentially saying, yeah, we know our products are expensive in your country because this country is a giant money suck. We know we're charging more for our products in this one country than anywhere else in the world, and yet somehow we're still losing money on the United States. Uh, Mr. Ricks, Eli Lilly charges $196,000 in the United States for Saramza, a stomach cancer drug. That same drug can be purchased in Germany for just $54,000. Will you commit to this committee to lower the price of Saramza in the United States to the same price that you're selling it in Germany, $54,000? Yes? No? Respectfully, Senator, um, the, that product has been on the market for a while. We do expect biosimilar entry. That's the primary mechanism in the U.S. where the price will fall when that occurs. I'm sure there'll be competition in the price. So what fall. you're telling me is that the American people will have to pay four times more than Germans do for the same product that you manufacture. Okay. Uh, Mr. Hudson, Sanofi is a French company. In France, Sanofi sells a thyroid cancer treatment, Capulsa, for $30,000 a year. Uh, Sanofi sells the same drug in the United States for $203,000 a year. Uh, it's nine times as much. Uh, will you commit to lowering the price of Capella in the United States to $30,000, same price as it's sold in France? Over time, with the introduction of competition and other biosimilars, etc., you'll see the price fall. Yeah, so the answer is no. Mr. Jurensen, in Denmark, Nova Norda sells a diabetes treatment Ozempic for $2,000 per year, uh, you charge six times more to Americans. Will you reduce the cost of Ozempic in the United States to what it is in Denmark? Uh, as soon as I believe you, then the amount you mentioned for the U.S. is before rebates. So on average, we pay 75% in rebates in the U.S. And for Ozempic, we actually see a price going down, our net price going down uh, year over year. So uh, we, we get uh, a low price uh, already. Uh, answer is no. Okay, so now here are the three PBMs. We've got David Joyner of CVS Caremark. Our goal as the PBM is to remove as many drug pricing challenges as possible for our clients and their members. A recent 2023 study by the Acuvia Institute examining drug costs found over the last five years, list prices have increased at a rate of 7.4%. <laughs> In order to make medications more affordable, our job at CVS Caremark is to go head-to-head -head with the drug manufacturers to negotiate the lowest possible prices. Competition in the branded marketplace is critical, and we use this competition to deliver discounts to our customers. By negotiating rebates and discounts, we lower costs for our clients and their members where competition exists. Next up is David Kotzner of Express Scripts. For decades, we've taken on one of the toughest challenges negotiating with pharmaceutical manufacturers to lower costs for employers, health plans, federal and state governments, and most importantly, patients. We exist to help solve the challenges you are exploring here today. Each year, Express Scripts saves more than $30 billion for employers, the public sector, and the patients we serve. This is driven by effective drug negotiation to medical management and a targeted clinical support programs. The savings are passed on to our clients at their direction. And then there's Heather Cianfraco of OptumRx. OptumRx, a part of United Health Group, provides essential services to our customers, which include employers, unions, health plans, and governments. Our team works every day to make prescription drugs more affordable and to improve health outcomes for people. We do this by conducting evidence-based clinical review of medications, negotiating with manufacturers and pharmacies to bring down the cost of drugs. They count on us to be a counterweight to the substantial market power of manufacturers, which have the sole discretion in setting and raising prices for their products. 
we are held accountable for consistently delivering savings on prescription drugs, for lowering overall healthcare costs, and ensuring people have access to the medications they need. PBM saved the system $145 billion annually. Hey, you know what they say, a penny saved is a penny earned. $145 billion saved is $145 billion earned. Just remember, her customers are not the patients. PBM saved the system $145 billion annually. Bernie is not having it. They've heard every single person from the drug companies and from the PBM say, we are working tirelessly to lower the cost of prescription drugs. Just knocking our brains out. And yet, at the end of the day, 1.3 million Americans are rationing their insulin. People have died. People end up in the hospital. And you're working night and day to lower the cost. And all over the world, people are paying a fraction of the price, not only for insulin, but for other products, drugs, than we are paying. We end up paying the highest prices in the world. And we want to know why there are Americans who are dying or becoming much sicker than they should because they can't afford the medicine they need. Today, one out of four Americans cannot afford the medicine that their doctors prescribe. That is beyond comprehension. So listen to this next question that Bernie asks the three PBM. And as you listen to their responses, remember, the list price is what we, the patients, pay at the pharmacy counter. And that same list price is what the PBMs make their commission on. The net price is what the manufacturers are actually making. Let me ask the PBMs uh, a, a question. It's a simple question, and I would appreciate a yes or no answer. Will you commit today that your companies will put insulin products on your formularies with the lowest list price? Join them. Uh, we will commit to put the lowest cost product on our formulary, net of discounts and rebates. So whether it be the low list price or the high list price, our job is to deliver the lowest net cost, post discounts, discounts off of high and or low list price. Dr. Kautzner? Uh, we will commit to putting the lowest net cost product on formularies. We commit to always providing the lowest cost option to our clients. And and other products are available to other clients through other formularies. Yeah, so that's a big fat no on all three fronts. These people have essentially created their own personal stock market. Mr. Ricks, yes or no, did Eli Lilly conduct $1.5 billion in stock buybacks in the year 2022? Uh, I believe that's approximately the number. Uh, Mr. Joyner, yes or no, did CVS Health conduct $3.5 billion in stock buybacks in 2022? Yeah, I'm not sure. If I had the consolidated statement uh, or consolidated financial statements in front of me that indicated such, would you agree that that's the figure? I would. Dr. Kotzner, yes or no, did uh, Express Scripts parent company Cigna conduct $7.6 billion in stock buybacks in 2022. I believe that that's accurate, Senator. Yes. Ms. Cianfraco, uh, yes or no, did United Healthcare, which owns Optum RX, conduct $7 billion in stock buybacks in the year 2022? Yes, that's about correct. Mr. Uh, Jorgensen, yes or no, did Novo Nordisk conduct $24 billion in Danish krona, uh, worth roughly $3.6 billion worth of stock buybacks in, in 2022. I believe that's approximately correct. Um, and Mr. Hudson, yes or no, did Sanofi conduct 497 million euro of stock buybacks in 2022, or roughly equivalent to 544 million U.S. dollars. That's correct, Senator. Thank you. So that's the long and short of what's happening in the American healthcare system, folks. We have these PBM middlemen whose job it is to lower prescription drug costs from the unregulated manufacturers, but the fees we pay for this service is what is driving those same prescription costs up in the first place. And let's be clear. 
The high cost of prescription drugs not only impacts the health of individual Americans, but the budget of the United States of America. If we paid the same prices for prescription drugs as major countries around the world, we could save over a trillion dollars in 10 years. I know many of my Republican friends concerned about the deficit. I share that concern. Pay the same price as people around the world. You save a trillion dollars over 10 years. That's real money. If I could just add one quick thing. Our most recent launch was Atlantis at 60% lower list price that was not accepted by the system. Now, with all of this said, something extraordinary has happened as of January 1st, 2024. All Americans can officially get insulin for $35 or less. Like in this country. That's right, my fellow Beatus pals, this is not a drill. We can all get insulin for $35 or less in the United States now. So first, thanks to HR Bill 6833, patients on Medicare can now get it like the patients on Medicaid can. And for the rest of us, the uninsured and the commercially insured alike, the three insulin manufacturers have officially capped out-of-pocket costs at $35 if you go straight through that. I've put together a Google Doc of how to do that, which I will link to in the episode description. But look at that. Cut out the middleman, go directly through the manufacturer, and all of a sudden, it's not so complicated at all. One caveat is that these programs do require active prescriptions. So if you don't have insurance, the cost of seeing a doctor and obtaining said active prescription could pose as a barrier. If this is your situation, maybe... Call a doctor you've seen in the past, explain your situation, and see if they'll prescribe it without having you come in. Or you could look into if there's a low-cost or like sliding-scale health clinic in your area where you could see a PCP and have them prescribe it for you. So clearly this is not a cure-all for an extremely broken healthcare system. But it is a pretty interesting case study on how simple this all could really be when you just cut out the middleman. Because when you figure that insulin costs the manufacturers about $5 a vial to produce, and that they're charging $35 for it, that's still a $30 profit margin per vial, times the 8.4 million people in the United States who use insulin. So that's still a profit of $2,940,000,000 for the manufacturers, and all without paying 80% of it back to the PBMs. Huh. Amazing. I think it goes to show that if we don't do away with PBMs entirely, they should at least be regulated and probably put back on a set salary structure instead of percentage commission. So be sure to check out the link in the episode description, How to Get Insulin for $35. And if this podcast has been useful for you, I would be remiss to not mention there's also a link in the episode description to buy me a coffee if you feel so inclined. God knows I need coffee after how scrambled my brain has become trying to figure all of this out. Otherwise, stay tuned on this ongoing quest of how to get insulin, both in and out of jail. Hooray!